Hey, what's up? It's Alex. If you're wondering, it's me. Um, how are you? I hope you're good. I've been, I've been okay. I feel like I'm speaking really quickly. I don't normally speak quickly. I don't know what's going on. Um, yeah. Okay. So I have no announcements to make. Um, that's, <laughs> that's because my life is extremely uneventful. Um, but no, that's because I need to be very quick. And I can't speak too much because the episode is long today. It's very long. Um, You might be thinking, hey, Alex, this is the first episode of yours that I'm listening to. Um, What's it about? Um, You know what? You should go and listen to the introduction. And in the introduction, actually, you know what? I'm just going to kind of (laughs) tell you. So this podcast, because this episode is very important. Um, This is kind of like probably this is probably the most important episode I've done so far. Um, and interestingly, um, something went wrong. Something went, uh, yeah, something went wrong. Um, so this podcast, uh, has become more and more personal for me. Um, and it's, I guess as it's become more and more personal, it's become, um, more and more meaningful, um, because it kind of just feels like an extension of myself. Um, and I, I've tried to interview people and, uh, have conversations that are not only just interesting to me, but, um, also kind of fill a gap that I have, that I feel like I've noticed in kind of the social world around me, whether it be a gap in discourse or a gap in, I don't know, um, people's thinking or a kind of harmful pattern of behavior that I've recognized that I think might be worth talking about or something. So, yeah, I guess the main themes of this podcast, as I said in the introductory episode, are kind of ethics and being and belonging and identity. Um, those are, I guess, I guess, yeah, three. There are really only three things there. Ethics, what it's like to be an individual, what it means to be an individual, and then identity, what it, what is the individual. Um and this episode, uh, this, yeah, what, so I had a conversation with my housemate, um, he's called Ralph. I had this conversation about a month ago and, um, the conversation was, was funny. Um, Ralph's a pretty funny guy. I mean, funny, ha ha. Um, but then towards the end of the conversation, maybe in the last 15 minutes, it took a turn and went down a path that made me feel so uncomfortable that I, I ended the podcast. Um, I, 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 I stopped. I didn't want to talk anymore. I ended the conversation. Um, and I, I had never imagined that, um, that would ever be something that would happen to me on, on this podcast that is so personal to me and that I spend so much time thinking about and kind of curating and, um, yeah, being, being so careful with, um, I, I had never imagined that it could kind of move into a territory where I would feel unsafe. I would feel like the purpose of the podcast was being undermined. Um, and what what happened was um, the... Okay, so maybe it's convenient for me to talk about the structure of this episode because um, what happened was... Uh, so in the first the first... This episode is split into two parts. The first part is the final 15 minutes from the conversation that I had with Ralph a month ago. 
And what happened in those in those final fifteen minutes was that the conversation. So Ralph Ralph is white. Um, he's a white person. And what happened in the final fifteen minutes was that the conversation turned into a discussion. What was initially a discussion about um, colonialism, but what quickly get, became a kind of um, what felt like me being spoken at, me being told what colonization and colonialism is. Um, and my dad's side of the family, they're Algerian. Um, the Algerians were colonized by the French. Um, and so colonialism is a topic that is very delicate for me. Um, and there were so many layers to this conversation. Um, Ralph is white. I'm, I'm not. Um, Ralph is English. Um, I was raised in Australia, uh, a colony. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my, I can, I'm fidgeting at the moment. Um, my voice, my voice feels weak and my heart feels heavy. Um, my voice feels very shaky and that's because, yeah, I suppose I'm upset even thinking about, thinking about, um, those, yeah, that conversation is, is upsetting for me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very uncomfortable being silenced on a topic that means so much to you. Um, it's very uncomfortable having that, being told what the experience is like. Um, it's very uncomfortable being told by, yeah, by someone who has some kind of attachment to a colonial regime, um, even if it's something to do with their ancestry. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very uncomfortable experience being told, being told what that experience means, the experience of being a colonized person. And, and it's worth, I, I, it's worth commenting on the kind of person that Ralph is, um, Ralph is very caring, a very insightful, very reliable, um, very passionate and very intelligent friend. Um, he, I live in the same house as him. Um, he, he listens to me. Um, I listen to him. There is a lot of mutual respect. There is a lot of engagement in each other's kind of personal projects. And he has been behind this podcast even before I moved into the house, um, he was listening and he was commenting on things and he would talk to me about things that, that I wanted to talk about. Ralph is not a racist person. Um, R- Ralph is by, by no means. That's not what this episode is. This isn't me cancelling Ralph. Um, it's nothing like that. What what happened in this episode, in the conversation was just kind of... Um, I, I guess you'll have to kind of... Um, see how how it resonates with you but i just i just think it's even even for those who are kind of um politically aware and and aware and and um try to take care of other people's sensibilities and other people's feelings sometimes um it's just best to listen um and that's not what happened here um that's not what happened here there was a kind of strange what I felt like was a strange kind of um, power imbalance, kind of unspoken power imbalance that kind of materialized, that was very uncomfortable for both of us, um, because I I kind of stopped speaking, um, and and I, anyway I'm I'm analyzing too much, um, and you haven't even heard the conversation yet. So the first part of the podcast, as I said, is going to be a discussion 
uh, part of the final 15 minutes of the conversation between Ralph and I. Um, the second part is a conversation, a three-way conversation um, between Oliver, Ralph and I. And Oliver is our other housemate. Um, that we act- There are actually five of us in, who live in where I live in London. Um, and only three of us were in the house at this time, Oliver, Ralph and I. So when, when I say at this time, I mean, so when I had that initial conversation with Ralph, um, Oliver was actually in the same room, just coincidentally, because we, we recorded the podcast at home in our lounge room. Oliver was on, on the sofa and Ralph and I were recording at the dining table. Um, and Oliver was there to witness the changes and kind of the permutations and the, the way this conversation changed. And he was there at the end to see my body language change, to see me kind of begin directing my energy inwards and closing off and um, begin to kind of, my, my body language changed and my tone changed. And yeah, he was there for all of it. So the second part is, as I said, a conversation between Ralph Oliver and I, which is kind of a reflection on what went wrong and how how that can so easily repeat itself even in politically progressive circles even in circles where people are politically aware um it's it's a it's kind of an exploration of the importance of listening um and when when to listen and when to contribute um and yeah um I guess I would just, yeah, I would like to thank all of you who are listening um, for being, for for making me feel as though this podcast is is helping, um, and and for 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 talking to me about things, um, and for engaging with me and for sharing pieces of your world with me. It, yeah, it really it really means so much to me. Um, I, I yeah, I just I want to thank you all. Um, and, and I, I really feel like all of us, are, are creating this new space, a space that I, I would like to see a lot more of in, in our world, a space where people share stories, painful stories, um, pleasant stories, stories of successes, stories of failures, um, and where people listen to each other and reflect on what these things mean. And I feel like the podcast is is kind of moving in that direction for me and the way that all of you respond um and the way that you share things with me um yeah it's really it it really is delightful and um yeah it it makes me feel a kind of togetherness and a hopefulness that i don't think i've ever felt before in my entire life so again um thank you very much um and i i hope you enjoy the episode can can like be have it made absolutely crystal clear to them what they've done what the impact is of what they've done and why it shouldn't be possible for them to do that ever again and then they need to be like loved because shame will just is just another form of punishment that finds its way back into this system of hate and shame and punishment and you're wrong, you're a bad person. And all so many people feel in, in this weird sense of being a bad person all the time. 
whether it's about you know their, the recycling they're doing or whether it's about you know relationship they're in where someone's telling them this kind of person they are you know um but the, the kind of person we are is is really just a set of coping mechanisms learned behaviors that come from like our culture deep down there's actually something quite universal that we share which is this kind of childlike need for love okay um Hmm. Can I do a little disclaimer that I, I I speak very decisively and that I might be wrong about a lot of things? <sighs> okay, you you can do it. A little disclaimer. Um, I. Uh, yeah, I. So with 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 the colonizer colonized relationship. Um, I think that may have been a particularly difficult and tricky example for you to have chosen. I feel like there, there's something, there could have been something, um, yeah, a bit, a bit less poignant and um, disturbing for people. Um, Sorry. But, oh no, no. Um, uh, I yeah I. I I know what you mean. Um, I know. I also feel. So yeah, like I, my dad is Algerian, and Algeria was colonized by the French, and I have felt. Um, in France, like people have treated me differently once I've told them that I was Algerian. There's mm-hmm. kind of, sometimes, sometimes it's like a, kind of. Um, these are <clears throat> these are the extremes of what I've been presented with. Sometimes there's like an obsequious um, desire to kind of tread extremely lightly and mm-hmm. not and not insult and not do anything. And then on the other hand, there's like a kind of maybe it's like a very traditional colonial view of what that person must be. So there's like, oh, you're Algerian. Oh, okay, I'm like white and I'm French. So like you're down here and like mm-hmm. I, I'm up there um, and I I haven't if the if the definition I think the reason why I'm finding this challenging is because of the word love I think that that word is that word has a um, a confused and confusing meaning for me um, and it's probably because it's something that I haven't had a very comfortable and safe and healthy relationship with over the course of my life um my parents separated when i was quite young and my mum has a hard time had a hard time um bringing me up by herself Mm -hmm. um and yeah i i i don't know i i think the the thing that you said that i liked was that if we interpret love as kind of an acceptance of one's existence I think that is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that... I don't think that that actually means that much. For, for me, at least. Like, if someone is going to feel a particular way about me based on a relationship of colonizers slash colonized, mm-hmm. um, sure, I'll accept that they exist. But, like if they're going to 
perpetuate a legacy of harm and oppression and racism and segregation and division and exclusion um like fuck them i yeah yeah yeah. but that's exactly what i'm talking about with forgiveness right like in that situation you as the person who's been wronged yeah like there's no obligation for you to forgive that person and they haven't even because they haven't even they haven't even stated and acknowledged what they've done yeah they're just embodying it conti- yeah. continuously embodying this thing that's been going on for however many hundred years Mm-mm. so but even if even if like i even if they did you wouldn't have you wouldn't be obligated to forgive them but then what does it mean for me to accept that they exist i don't think that's what i was i wasn't asking you to like love okay like a white french guy who's being a dick okay i don't think I just think someone's got to love okay. that f- white French guy. Otherwise, he's going to like just p- reproduce hate. Okay. But you don't have to do that. Okay. But, you- then, then, but then the people who don't see him doing that may not have a reason to not like him. And then like if if you have a community of people who... Yeah, like if you have a, um, I don't know, a community of white supremacists who all believe the same thing. Yeah. And there are people of color who are being, yeah, are having a, a horrible time and are, are being seriously tormented by these white supremacists. Um, then I imagine that there's this horrible feedback. No, that's... um. Okay, is it? It's something outside. I think it's a Hoover. Okay. Wow, maybe I'll wait. Actually, I'll... I'll You're in the flow. You're in yeah, the flow. It's fine. Um, um, it's really loud. Um, uh, yeah, if, if there isn't an opportunity for people in their own community to call them out because they have felt what it's like to be at the receiving end of hatred... Mm. Um, it it just feels like i don't know it feels quite it feels quite scary that like obviously everyone has to be like people people can be loved i'm not saying that like some people shouldn't be but this is what i mean about a system that allows all the emotions to pass and yeah be right real. right because you're because i said this thing about like the worst possible people you can imagine. Yeah, they yeah. need to be loved, right? Yeah, yeah. And now we're talking about white supremacists. So it's, it's exactly that. It's painful. Yeah. It's a horrible yeah. like idea to think of. Yeah. But then you're immediately saying that somehow for them to be loved, your experience needs to be denied. No, 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 no. That that's not. But the, but, uh, but what? But like I'm, like it's like it, it gets into this like binary, which is like what we need is a, is a justice system and a system that people can navigate where everyone everyone's emotional realities can flow and exist sure sure and that's what i'm so the reason that i point that that i point that out is like like there's no like like the people who've experienced the, the 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 white supremacists all the people who've experienced like the, the white Frenchman, who, by the way, is like, he's reproducing sh- his own shame. If he's the guy who's being obsequious to you, he's reproducing his own shame. If he's the guy who's being superior to you, he's shaming you, you know, but it's like part of that shame economy. There's, there's like two people who should really just 
be equal to each other uh, and that's not happening because of massively ingrained histories um the situation with with a, a, a system that helps us move on from that inequality is it needs to allow for like therapy for the oppressor to understand what it is that's happened and not to hate themselves for it even though that is like the, the first instinct you know um if you if you if you get to the point if you've done something horrible and then you get to the point where you can actually acknowledge that you know this is why like truth and reconciliation like has to be has to have has to go through these sort of quite um do you know about marshall rosenberg so he's an interesting guy he's a jewish guy he's from um detroit i believe he was he grew up during the sort of the race riots in detroit and he did a lot of work in um i think in vietnam and he would do these things where like people who fucking killed other people's family and he'd just get them in the room and he would say is there anything you'd like to say uh and just like to say what like and people would just take it in turns to express like what it was that had happened what was true to them when what their needs were and it was just a really slow gentle process of like everyone in the room getting their emotional reality heard and it's hard it's like and that that doesn't mean you have to love that first doesn't mean you have to like bump fist with that with the person afterwards or anything like that there's no obligation hmm. but i guess rosenberg had an instinct and understanding that for peace to to come everyone needs to have some form of therapy in the broad sense what i believe therapy is is like a controlled environment in which someone's emotional reality can be acknowledged right so i go see my shrink and i can chat absolute crud hopefully i don't <laughs> but like i can just like express feelings that may not be like um you know i can just express my feelings as they are I don't have to censor them or police them or anything like that. And then that person is paid to kind of acknowledge that feeling, acknowledge the reality of that feeling. Not to like, not to just like, you know, you can dispute events, but you can't dispute that someone feels a way mm. that they're saying they feel. So with regard to the, um, I think the reason that I picked the example of colonizing is because I think it's something that's been written about a lot really well. And people like CLR James and James Baldwin have like, they come back to the, the poison that the colonizer creates in himself, which is something, I mean, I, those are the bits I'm fascinated by because I'm like, I just tick every like fucking default box. Like I'm like middle-class white, straight London, um, like, like everything, you know? So I, and I, I find a lot of people who in that scenario, their go-to is like either superiority or shame. And it's, it's fucked and it just creates this like so you can't um the only good thing about shame is that it negates pride but it, it's not like you there is a there is a mindful way of acknowledging the reality of the situation and not um not destroying yourself as a result of it uh, and that's everyone in the situation actually needs for people to acknowledge without creating more shame 
the act of killing is a really interesting example of this actually have you seen the act of killing no it's um i won't go away too much but it's um is it off topic no it's on topic okay. um it's a film about uh, uh, a genocide that occurred in indonesia in the early 1960s and about two million people were killed it was quite a fast operation of anti-communist violence and a lot of people who weren't even identifying as communists got killed it was just a it was a sort of west west backed um military intervention and the people who perpetuated that violence are still very much um in power they're the ruling party they they come up they go on chat shows and they talk about how fun it was to kill all the communists and they like they had uh anyway so this guy joshua oppenheimer who um is an american filmmaker um he's jewish as well which adds an interesting dimension to it i guess um he uh goes there he's lived he lives there for like 10 or 15 years he learns the language he meets all these guys who did the killings and he he says i'm making a movie uh and i want you to recreate the um the killing that you did i want you to like direct yourself in a a recreation of like the killing like and he just he lets them be smug they're these guys they're like oh yeah some people say i should go to the hague but i'm not going to the hague (laughs) you know like they're really like they, they just have fun with it and they like dress up and like some of them dress up in drag and they're like these weird really surreal scenarios they create to recreate this like and they're like really they, they just have absolutely no shame about it and then like gradually it's like a two and a half hour film and then gradually towards the end there's some semblance of like of the of the pet of the kind of of the the terror of in themselves as a viewer you watch it and you're like it's just really shocking in a way to see people be proud of the things that they're proud of but um the process of recreation and acting and kind of allowing that person to to fill to live out their their kind of superiority against the contradiction of the fact that uh i guess the contradiction of the fact that no one does it like there's no reason why anyone should have a right to kill anyone else um there is a contradiction there it's like the 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 drone pilots who kind of have this like really crazy ptsd that from just being in a room with a computer you know Mm. so that that moral contradiction that it does um if it's unexamined it destroys people Mm. um i think i need to take a break Okay, and now we're going to move on to the discussion between Ralph, Oliver, and myself. Oh, and just a heads up, we actually listened to that little, uh, I guess it was about 15 minute bit from the interview um, that Ralph and I had. Uh, The three of us listened to that before we had the the discussion between all of us. So, um, uh, and also the voice that isn't mine and the voice that isn't Ralph's, obviously, that's Oliver's voice. He's the first one who speaks after me. What did you think? Of what we just listened to. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. It's quite hard to like listen back to that and get and and feel the same. Feel like being in the same emotional space as when it first 
as as when that first uh, that conversation first happened. Um. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I certainly don't feel the way I did back then because I was pretty upset back then. Um, and I guess we've all spoken about it since then, um, especially you and I, Ralph, we've spoken about it a few times. So I feel like I've had the time to kind of process it and um, yeah, you and I have spoken about what it meant for each of us and where it where it may have gone wrong if it went wrong at all um, and what it was that may have made me feel uncomfortable or may have made you feel like I was being there was some deficiency as an interviewer in terms of not directing the conversation um, somewhere so I guess the first question I want to ask both of you is um uh, do you think there are some topics that some groups of people shouldn't uh, shouldn't speak first in? Do you think there should be listening? Um, for, let, let's go straight. I'll jump straight to the point. Do you think on matters of colonization and colonialism, the colonizer should have to listen before listen to the what the colonized says? Um, because there was a point that you right, that you made, Ralph, which was that um, that you can't deny the existence of the person. Um, that was, and that's something that I agree with. You can't. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, if if there is going to be a kind of remedying on either side of the wounds that have been opened by the colonizer, um, and a kind of respect for the colonizer by the colonized, there has to be a mutual listening. Um, but I think it has to happen in a particular order um, or one voice, one voice has to be protected, which is the voice of the colonized. Um, yeah. What do you think? Either of you? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, uh, yeah, I agree with that. I don't know if I, I mean, I can, having listened, it's quite fresh in my head, the conversation. Um, it, it would be easy on one level to just point out moments where I feel, moments where I feel I didn't, um, while, while we were listening to the last 15 minutes of that, um, there were definitely like, it was more visible to me than it was at the time. Um, moments where I just wasn't noticing um, things that you were saying or the ways, m more accurately, the ways that you were saying things. Um, what did you notice? Um, I noticed hesitance from you, um, just the energy of our speaking patterns. Um, I was speaking very quickly and confidently and um, you, there was like uh, a sense, a tone in your voice of, I felt when I listened to that, that I'm not reading, I wasn't reading certain cues from you, um, of like, hold on, hold on, like, um, 
yeah on the subject of listening like i i do agree with the principle of 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 in the matter of colonization listen listening to the the colonized first i think it's the problem i had was not was what what, what did i do with that listening mm. um you know you, you shared your experience with me and i i kind of harvested it as data to continue the the thread that i was kind of previously on and that sort of um i think that's what created the atmosphere which ultimately led to you not not wanting to continue the conversation okay Oliver? listening back to it definitely there was um a pull from there was a pull from ralph away from the personal away from the personal and into a more um like intellectual kind of space um which uh <clears throat> i don't know that was quite noticeable i guess like um so like think when i was listening to it i was like trying to think back to what it was like being in the room at the time when that conversation was being had because you could obviously see the body it's both yeah 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 and and there's and, and and Ralph's body language was very open and and as that sort of 15 minutes went by um Alex's body language really closed down and he really um kind of it was very it was very visible that it wasn't comfortable especially just right at the last minute and I, I so listening back to that I haven't thought about it a huge amount between then and now, which is about a week or two. Mm, two yeah, weeks. Two weeks. Um, it was quite hard to like summon back that feeling. And it was really, but, but, but thinking about it, there was this real kind of like, Ralph was really in full flow and was obviously talking about something that he was quite passionate about. And there was a real disconnect between almost the kind of ebullience of that and what felt like Alex's personal experience. They sort of drifted off those two, those two kind of the body languages drifted off like untethered rafts caught by different currents and just got further and further apart. Um, so to like coming back to your question, which I have not answered at all. No, no, but you've taken this. Where I, where I would have liked it to have gone. Okay. But coming back to your question a little bit. Um, that, sort, that sort of like ebullience of in, in a kind of, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in like obviously quite a well-read and researched position and kind of like the joy in that. There's a sort of sense of joy in that in that knowledge and in having all these threads to draw on that that felt like Ralph was kind of like surfing his his like impressive uh, ability to pull together different um, sources and and ideas that really felt at odds to how 
um, grim the subject was and really spoke to the fact that it wasn't it wasn't really something that was personal to Ralph which um, it obviously was personal to Alex and I think that that uh, in itself like is a is a really good reason to think about the fact that it that conversation needed to be led by Alex much more than by Ralph because um because the emotional tone needed to be set by the person for whom for for who who was most affected by it um in a personal way so that it it, it respect it sort of could keep pace with that um and and not overshoot it out of a kind of yeah um yeah i i I don't know how exactly how to express that but yeah Mm. yeah yeah no that um i i agree but i'm also very confused by that concept of um when when there is an experience that someone can't empathize with like being racially profiled or being racially vilified in this context like ralph i imagine that you haven't been um racially profiled no of course not yeah um and that kind of creates a a chasm or a rift or a schism between between the two of us like when when we're talking about that very experience like the experience of being being um thought of being associated with stereotypes because of the way you look or the way you sound or the way you move or the way the people around you move um that that's something that I'm sure that both of you as white men can't empathize with. Um, and that doesn't mean that, uh, that doesn't mean that it's a completely inaccessible experience to you because I can tell you what it's like. I can describe it for you. I can say how it feels. I can say, I can speculate as to the effect that it's had on my life, um, on the opportunities that I've had, on the opportunities that my family have had. But, um, mm. There, there's a kind of like a, a poverty, like an epistemic poverty, a knowledge poverty that arises where I can, I can tell you all of these things, but I'm not sure what it does for you. Um, I'm not sure what, what, what I expect you to do with it or what you expect to do with it or what is the right thing to do with that kind of information because... Listening is one thing. Listening is very important. And I feel like one thing that didn't happen in that last, the last 15 minutes was um, there wasn't much listening on your part. Um, I think it was maybe 14 minutes of you speaking and one minute of me speaking um, about something that I have experienced and that you haven't Mm -hmm. and something that we have both studied um, and read scholarship on. so yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what I don't know how how we're supposed to proceed. Um I'm not sure how like obviously you're you're like neither of you are racist men. There there is no doubt about that. Like both of you are both of you have made me feel so welcome in this house. Um and and 
yeah that that that's rare i i rarely feel welcomed by people and i'm always kind of suspicious of the way some people speak to me or look at me um but i i don't feel that and even in the conversation i had with you i didn't feel that um mm. it, i knew that it, it wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't a personal attack or anything like that um, yeah it was just a a kind of yeah a, a difference in uh our maybe our understanding of what the podcast space is supposed to be or anyway that, that's kind of we're going down a different path there but yeah. um so that, let's not talk about that but what yeah i guess the, the question that i want to pose to try and distill all of that into a question is i'll 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 try and answer the question after i hear what you say because i think okay. that will be or what both of you say but how do you think that we can build a stronger and safer and more welcoming world after having and this is the most important bit after having listened to the experiences of the marginalized and the excluded and the minorities first what is the next thing to do from the people who have the authority um i think the people who have the authority have a duty to have conversations amongst themselves that's one part of it um not not to um not to lean on oppressed people for um for you know not to re you know to listen to them but not to kind of exploit or rely upon um the sharing of their experience as a as a kind of um commodity um one thing this experience made me notice as a kind of left-leaning white person was i guess the discomfort i feel um hearing the experience of someone who's racialized and and um there's a bit of me that just kind of wants the wants the problem to to go away or or wants you know just finds it like in a way annoying or frustrating that that racism happens but it's a it's a feeling that comes from never having experienced it so it's it's it it's more it's more like it is emotional but it's like this kind of um it, incredulity is that the word where like so it's coming from such a different place whereas when i hear you speak about it um you know that's there are certain aspects of that experience that you've had to take on board and accept and um it's not um i suppose what i'm saying is it's really easy for me to sort of intellectually go ah that happened that's wrong terrible awful mm. isn't it ghastly um whereas you know as someone who's not experienced it whereas um for someone who has it's it that that's more of a a a, a, a roadblock like more of a, a moment of like um you know like i'm sure if i was a person of color or, or a person of color in that situation would have stopped when you started sharing your experiences and held more space for that because of knowing the 
no, no, I'm saying I'm just gonna say knowing what it meant, but like I mean more than that. <laughs> Having shared the same or similar, yeah, 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 similar experience, uh, knowing what it feels like. What do you think about that? Um, well, yeah. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm still I'm still like I think I think you're right there. But yeah, I I I I know what you mean. I know because like there are some things that I haven't um some things that I haven't experienced that people around me have um and yeah, I think I imagine that um Maybe what I've been taught to do as someone who's been institutionalized for so long is take it away from the kind of emotional, uh, the emotional thing part of me and translate it into the more uh, abstract, um, rational, academic thing. Because that is what makes sense to me. That's mm. how, that would be my way of accessing what it is that, as, as someone's experience that I haven't experienced, that's the way that I can line them up. Um, but it's as we as we saw or as we heard, I should say, in that interview um, that you and I did, there there can be a kind of mismatch there, where when there is the opening up of an experience, and the experience can't be shared with the person who's listening, and they respond with. Um, kind of, you know, abstract academia and literature, um, there's this tension between real life experience and scholarship that is often by people, at least at the institutions that I've been at, the scholarship is mostly by people who haven't experienced racism. Like all of the, all of the, I guess, main political theorists that we study are white men, mm. um, yeah. So I. Yeah. But you, but I think what what you're saying is that it's it's the the taking that that what the input that what what is heard is experience, mm. and then uh, in that moment I feel for some reason that I have to feed it back into a theory, something abstract, oh, something that, just to. to not that you have to, but that is, I think that's something that the three of us who have been schooled and mm -hmm. who have been taught the Western way of thinking, yeah. um, that's what we've been taught to do, to translate things into terms that we are familiar with. And when there isn't, when we can't be familiar with an experience because we haven't experienced it for some, for people who have been, you know, taught who have read, I don't know, Foucault and other scholars and stuff, that's where we, that's where we might go. Because mm. they have theories about what it's like and what it means and what you're supposed to do. But yeah, I still feel like, I don't know, there's, it doesn't traverse that, that boundary, that kind of, the gap between no. shared, ex between experience and um, academic understanding. There, there's still, there's still a gap there. Um, and I guess it's that gap that, that is extremely important here um, and that that is extremely important in making social progress in allowing 
in not moving a personal experience into abstract terms because that that's not what it is at least for me when i i i have i have learned a lot from scholarship and from university but what i haven't been told is what my experience is like in itself mm. i can only get that from the experience and so yeah i suppose like what when you said before um when you hear about racism or people being racialized um yeah if if it's if, like me too i i think that's horrible that shouldn't happen um and i guess <laughs> i i was gonna say i have the privilege of being able to share or of having shared the experience so i have a richer understanding um and it's a pretty awful privilege to have um but yeah i i think that it allows me to kind of have a richer awareness of what is needed to remedy all of it mm. for the person to kind of how they the person who's been racialized um because i i've i've been there and i've kind of worked through it and i have an understanding of what's helped me um i'm aware that i've been talking for a while now so okay um but yeah i, I have an under i have an understanding of what helps me and so I can talk to them about what's helped me and see whether there are, I don't know, strategies that they can deploy or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I also, yeah, and I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know. When, when that isn't there, I feel like there's, there's something that's missing. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I don't know. Oliver. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Welcome back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I, um, I like I, I hear what you're saying, um, and what and and like a thread of it that comes out at me is that maybe the thing that people who are in the position that Ralph and I are in should do next is 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 like listen more and and um i recently had an experience of um of being in my family home with my parents and my uh, brother and I'd suggested at some point that they listen to uh, This Is Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race on audiobook. We listen to audiobooks in my family. And they'd, they'd started doing that and I had some really interesting conversations with them where their instinct was uh, maybe like this kind of is similar to what Ralph was talking about was to feel quite resistant to it um, and they're, they're really wonderful human and open-hearted human beings and yet this resistance was creeping in so my mum was uh, she's sort of saying yeah it's really interesting and she's got all this interesting things and it's really opened my eyes to this this and this but but uh when she talks about uh when she talks about 
she was talking about a section that's about uh, black people in uh, uh, black women in the feminist movement. And it just feels like all she wants to talk about is race. And I was like, well, yeah, because this is a book about race. Um, but but there was this kind of resistance where she felt like, oh, why is this the only thing she wants to talk about? And my and for my brother, the the point of resistance that kind of particularly came up was that at the beginning of the book, um, Rami uh, says, you need to listen to this without any resistance or without without trying to uh, contradict it in your mind. You just need to like listen to it and accept that it's true. And for him, he was like, well, but I've been brought up to like be critical of everything and to, to, to interrogate things. And, and, I, and I guess that, you know, those two examples of sort of saying, oh, you know, this is, it, there's, my mum's was just more out of a kind of slight discomfort. And my brother's was out of something quite, uh, was out of a, a discomfort as well. Um, definitely. But maybe speaks to this in that, like, what he needed to do was was just to listen and just open up to it and listen to it and turn off that critical faculty, just tone it, turn it down a little bit, turn that critical faculty down a bit. And I feel like the, the, that just really opening yourself up to the fact that, that these experiences are the experiences is the work that white you know that the colon colonizers the white people need to do and the com maybe the conversations that we need to have amongst ourselves is about opening up to it uh, 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 and maybe not about maybe not about seeking solutions um or how how to resolve it but to like how like to have conversations about how to be more open to it and 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 how to wrestle with that discomfort that comes from being implicated in something really unpleasant. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's yeah, maybe that's what I think. Okay. I, I don't know if that if that feels like that answers the question, and I'm not sure I really responded to what you said. No, that does yeah. that does answer the question, but um, I don't know. I. It feels. Um, Does that feel like a cop out? Yeah, a little. A yeah, little right. Bit, but like, <laughs> not, not. I'm not sure that there could be that. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a cop out, but it just. It feels. Um, like too hopeful, that that's actually going to do something significant. Um, but yeah, because like. You both listen to me, and I feel like the people who are able to listen to these experiences and engage with them um, and try and understand what it what it's like so that you can navigate the world differently afterwards and be sure not to engage in that kind of behavior or to call people out who are engaging in that kind of behavior. You two are already left-leaning people who are familiar with this kind of stuff and who will listen you will listen to me um but i feel like i feel like a concern of mine with people with people in general is that the people who 
will listen are the people who already listen or who already can listen. But there are people who don't. Like in the interview, we were talking about white supremacists. And I was trying to say that like, you made the point that Ralph made the point that um, people need to be loved by someone because if they don't, if they're not loved, like something bad's going to happen um, either to them or to, to others. Um, and, and I said, sure, like, yeah, I, I do think people need to be loved, but like if they're being loved by the people in their white supremacist community for being a white supremacist, like great like that's that's wonderful i'm so happy that's exactly what i want um so yeah i i i just don't know so i i oliver i didn't mean to i don't think it's a cop-out um what i mean is that i just don't think that it can apply that it will apply to many people that many people are capable of seeing. because because as you said the structures that are in place at the moment are teaching us to be critical um and the the example that you gave with your brother is perfect because i've been taught to be critical of my own experience and look at it through the lens of scholarship and stuff and i've done that um and it's only really been through this podcast through talking to people in this context where i've realized that like there is a much more important level of engagement that happens at the level of emotions and not the level of scholarship because you remove something when you turn to these yeah when you turn to the generalizations of of scholars um, because yeah even 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 in this context right now in the context of a podcast the listener is losing something they're not here with us right now they can't feel what it's like they can't see us they can't see the smart the the way that i'm gesticulating the way my face is moving all of that kind of stuff they can't see how you're twirling the little pen around um and scholarship is even more uh vacant because it's just a book with a name on it and words inside um yeah so i that's going to be pretty hard to respond to no, but no it's okay i and yeah i so yes i think like yeah the the there's this kind of like um annihilating of the emotional that happens when you kind of take it into the intellectual and when you're removed from the experience i guess that's impossible to avoid oh, but but to, just thinking about your earlier point about that uh the the kind of left leaning sort of already warmed up uh ears being more able to listen i think that's absolutely right and one thing that i should point out is that i'm kind of secure i don't have many threats in my life you know other than the normal kind of mental threats of human existence <laughs> navigating this world and trying to find happiness but but i don't have you know 
I don't have uh, threats on the kind of hierarchy of needs that go very deep. Mm. Um, and nor does my family. And it's and it's and from that position of security, I feel like it's relatively easy to not re- you know not easy but relatively easy to navigate your mindset and just kind of reorientate slightly and and accept that something's true or something is a real experience because it it doesn't actually really touch you uh personally my 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 family uh uh it, there's no actual real threat to them to to accept that the that the racism that they read about in that book is very real um other than maybe that they feel implicated so they feel a little jolt of shame and in other parts of society in the uk there are people who are who do feel threat in their lives threat of losing their jobs and threat of losing their houses and um and the inflated threat that's that's kind of uh, pushed at them through uh through the media who have less resources and less education and less to fall back on um and and for whom sort of structures of like comfort and and like in in grouping and othering are often like structures of comfort that make you feel we talk about white supremacists and how happy and safe they feel being white supremacists and talking to each other about white supremacy and and reinforcing the value of that gives them as a community this real sense of strength and and security which often which they may if then you know if they're if they're relatively impoverished or then you know if they're actually insecure in many other aspects of their life give them this kind of security that they need Mm. so yes it's much more complicated it's much easier for me to go to my kind of middle class family and talk to them about it Mm. than it is for um people in a different situation to talk about it i but i i still think that the point holds that that there's a that, that that there is a step that us as white people and colonizers need to, the, the action that we can take without kind of like overriding and obliterating that experience is to talk to each other about um about listening and about the truth of it and accepting it and that kind of needs to go so on a personal level the people i can reach out to are the people who are near me um but if you th- if we think about maybe i don't know if this is right but if we think about like on a oh just a car starting up outside if we think about that like on a bigger level like at the moment our in this country our political leaders are really really failing in that and in fact are like pointedly using uh a kind of divisive and uh, com- uh language and and arguments and doing the very opposite of that kind of like encouraging people to listen and to accept experiences of the marginalized and the and um those so you know so that and and i think that 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 on that level you know if our if our leadership if our press if those who had bigger voices were taking this position of of 
of really trying to push the idea of listening and opening up and offering space, then that 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 may maybe that that does penetrate down into into layers of society that are harder to reach. Mm. But but I don't know. But that that's just trying to think about how to answer that question of what what needs to happen next. Ralph, do you have any thoughts? I suppose during our <coughs> The conversation that we had a few weeks ago, um, it was striking how a few of the areas of tension that we um, explored on a theoretical, critical, analytical level um, manifested in an emotional, experiential level within the conversation. Mm. So... It's going very meta. The discussion of emotion versus uh, emotion experience on one side and um, analysis and and uh, critique and theory and stuff on the other side. Um, and um, the idea of how spaces can be created to hold and recognize feeling. Um, Oliver, you... Um, when you picked up the example of the white supremacist um, space and how that, um, I guess, how a, how um, a nationalist identity could be formed around a desire for security um, that is otherwise lacking due to, you know, um, uh, other other scenarios. I suppose I, I try to live life with a allowing for the 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 possibility that everyone i meet has in some way been deeply wronged and to try and kind of um uh hold space for that i suppose um i i've been doing a, a bit of um door knocking for the labor party in the election campaign and one of the things I'm really become really aware of is how um, easy it is to make your agenda um, visible and how as soon as the person you're talking to feels like you have an idea from the past that you're bringing into the present, how much that um, they don't want that, you know, they suddenly, they, the conversation becomes much more combative. If I'm bringing in an idea that I've formed like even five minutes ago, even 10 seconds ago into the space that's not recognizing what they're bringing into the space, um, then that, that makes for a much more combative situation mm. um, or much more like with friends, it's not combative, but it's uncomfortable. There's something, you know, um, and so, yeah, like a lot of... Um, a lot of the camp, the moments in canvassing I've had have been just like um, uh, listening to people talk about their experiences, um, and not, you know, um, uh, not correcting those experiences ever. You know, not asking more follow-up questions that open up the experience and allow for that experience to be heard and recognised, rather than correcting the experience with 
some preconceived notion or theory or idea. Um, I don't know if that's relevant. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like you and Oliver gave two different, you were speaking about two different, uh, you were looking at the same question through two different lenses. And Oliver was looking at the question I asked through the lens of um, uh, trying to trying to create trying to understand that privilege comes into privilege informs one's ability to listen and to be comfortable listening um, because listening in the context of our conversation is synonymous with change um, and change it seems and I, I agree with what you said Oliver change is change happens more easily when there is security um, but that's not always the case because look at like Donald Trump mm. like he's got a lot of money um, but can I interject ah uh, wait no I can't um, <laughs> So that, that, that's a poor example, but just there are lots of wealthy people who are conservative and who, there are lots of people who have been to great universities and had the best educations in the world who are conservative. So obviously, um, it's not always the case that the secure, that security allows you to, um, uh, allows you to, to listen. Um, and then Ralph, you, you moved on to, I guess, a more uh, specific analysis of the question of listening, which is um, what people who can listen, how they can engage with people who can't. Um, and you're right. I, I, have, I have seen that um, conversations with people who are of a different political leaning um, tend to derail more quickly when there is uh, kind of a, a quick appeal to um, differences or a quick turn to, oh, mm. you know, like, um, you know what I just realized? Like, oh, no, no. Or like, this, mm. is, this is what mm. I've been thinking for years and years, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm not sure if that's kind of the, the point that you were trying to make. That, like, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, that, that um, because you're right, that is a kind of combat. It's mm. throwing... It's painting an image of yourself as being different to the other person. Um, and I guess to relate it back to what I was talking about before, you're not, not you, but when one does that, they're really, really widening the epistemic gap between shared experience. Um, and maybe, maybe that's because, and that, that's a really difficult gap to kind of, to narrow because if you're talking with a white supremacist and you're not a white supremacist and you never have been, you can't, or it would be, yeah, I, I'm not sure how well you could uh, engage with the experience of being a white supremacist. Like maybe you can understand that this person may feel a certain way about people of color, but you can't, you probably can't embody it because that's not how you feel. And yeah, you're right. I, I'm not sure that you proposed. I'm not sure that you proposed uh, 
a solution to to that kind of conversation like uh the yeah what the person what the person who's going around knocking on doors Mm -hmm. what is appropriate for them when they meet with someone what is an appropriate way for them to communicate with someone who believes the opposite of what you believe Mm -hmm. um because yeah canvassing as you said probably doesn't work when you when a white supremacist opens the door and you tell them that um you know, progressivism is the way to go. The, the point at which I was, um, that I had a thought earlier, um, was just a, <laughs> when I silenced <laughs> No, it was good because I, you, you had it, you, you were full, full flow. But, um, uh, yeah, like I think that the point that you were making actually, um, completely holds up in terms of security because while, um, Donald Trump may economically be secure, um, there are ways in which he's definitely not secure. There are mm. there are sort of psychological um, gaps, chasms. Uh, there are, I, you know, it's very. I, I don't. I don't want to be an armchair Freud, but um, <laughs> but there are there. Are, you know, there. It's very obvious with every despotic leader mm. that there is something, some deep, violent fear. You know, I mean, you look at Stalin, the way that he kind of. You know, he became so paranoid. Like the, the the what that I think it's and I think it's about power. I think what that power compounds, that power and privilege compounds if you embrace it the way that any kind of supremacist does. Um, that power. Uh, and now I'm and now I'm veering more into the theoretical. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think that that if yeah, it's a fear. It's um, what it, does it, it do? What does the power? Maybe, maybe I'm not sure that you'd be able to answer that question because you'd be speculating as to the psychological profiles of these people. Mm-hmm. But there is, you have pointed to something really important, which is that I don't think that humans are very good at um, being in positions of power and not being corroded and corrupted um, and not, not forgetting... Um, yeah, not forgetting that, like, we are all human beings. Mm. Um, yeah. That there's, um, if I may bring in a, a, a sort of somewhat intellectual example, but I suppose it's not really. Um, there's a the thing that James Baldwin says about, um, in one of his novels, about um, how he's trying to understand why, the, why, He's trying to understand whiteness and why the, 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 the white person behaves the way they do. And he speculates that it might be that the white person knows on some level the, the carnage they've created and the hurt and the suffering. And they're so afraid of that suffer, hurt and suffering coming back to them that they have to create um, a system even more rigid, even more violent to defend against that. Um, and I think... I think that goes some way to answering the question of security. I think when the privileged and the powerful are insecure, a lot of that insecurity is, yeah, it's some kind of moral, um, uh, dif- sort of, yeah, mm, but void. Yeah, that that is. I'm sure that that there is something in that. Like maybe 
I haven't met your family, Oliver, but maybe in maybe that book, you know, maybe the thought that ah, oh, this woman, she's talking a little bit about race too much. Maybe there is a kind of fear there that like if not, not maybe maybe not in your parents, but just like in in a person who does listen in their head, maybe when they are thinking about what a world would look like where there weren't these kind of, you know, where there wasn't systematic racism, um, maybe there's a fear that that world would not be um, a very pleasant one for them. And so maybe there, maybe there is, maybe that kind of contributes to a widening of the gap between the sharing of experience because it's a real, you know, you're making yourself very vulnerable by, by acknowledging that your ancestors and, you know, your blood have done horrible things to lots of people around the world. Um, there have been genocides. There have been, there have been, there's been so much pain that has been felt by, um, by, yeah, by a lot of people who aren't white. Um, but at least for me, the last thing, the last thing that, that I want is a world where the racism that is directed towards people of color is directed at white people. That is the last thing that I want. Mm. And I speak on behalf of all of my friends, every single one. Mm. That is the last thing that they want. They don't want that. Mm. They, and so, well, yeah, when, when you say that, like, the James Baldwin example, I, I'm not familiar with that, but um, the point that he makes, which is that, you know, there, there's a reluctance to, to improve a situation because you don't want to give the privilege that you have to other people because they might use it against you. That's not the world that I, mm. that me and my friends who are also people of color that, and I'm not saying that that, that I'm not saying that this is what you, you think, but when I hear that James Baldwin example, that's my response that if anyone believes, if anyone thinks that they are so, they are so flagrantly and fatally misunderstanding um, the cries for help and assistance from people like me. Um, and, and I, I haven't experienced the racism that my, my father has experienced um, and that other people have experienced. I've been lucky because I grew up in a, an accepting area and I have accepting friends. Um, but yeah, Oliver, it looked like you were going to say something. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I just, when you said that, that made me think of another set of difficult conversations that I've had with my siblings um, around uh, sexism. And and there was a kind of period of time where they were quite like, my two of my brothers were quite like liberally using this term, that this idea that the pendulum had swung too far that, uh, you know, like now men were being ridiculed or whatever, you know, whatever it was that they thought it was, they were using this term, the pendulum had swung too far. And just when you were talking then about like this idea of uh, that the alternative to 
uh, racism not being pointed at people of color that the opposite of that like the you know the the inevitable opposite of that is that racism would be pointed at white people mm. like it sort of connects to this idea of the pendulum that there's one axis mm. and that it's either over here or it's over there mm. and that's and and um and that image is really powerful mm. and um, and people kind of uh people can feel it so um when my brother was having a baby and he was getting these really condescending comments from female uh, colleagues of his in the office about you know his, what he would be like as a father or whatever i don't know you know he was really feeling like oh now i can't say anything about this and you know everything and this has got it's, you know the pendulum has swung um so people feel that but um and 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 unfortunately like and it's quite a strong visual image but i think you know as you're saying as you're talking about i think it's not it's so much more complicated than that mm. the the just the pendulum just needs to fuck off because yeah, it, yeah. it bears no relation to the world yeah yeah um and unfortunately we are mostly familiar with a world of heavy inequality um and it's difficult to imagine a world without it um and yeah in in one of my other interviews on a different podcast i interviewed a cognitive um neuroscientist who did a lot of research in, um, in the field of decision making and one thing that he found was that it's very 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 difficult for us to resist accepting what is the, the first and easiest and most comfortable thought. Um, and in a world where there is inequality, um, it's, it's very easy to imagine a world where that's reversed um, and where the, the alternative to racism towards people of color is racism towards white people that's a very easy thing to imagine because all you need to do is just replace the appearance of people in positions of power um mm. but yeah i guess i guess the what that makes me what i've just realized is that um yeah I don't have much of an idea of what a world without racism would be or what it would look like. Um, and yeah, I can speculate, you know, like maybe it's like one of the Scandinavian countries. They have some good equality of opportunity things going on, but hey, they're like ethnically homogenous and it's very easy to do that when, when you have people who, um, who are mostly, who mostly share similar appearance. That's a huge generalization, but um, yeah, you look like you're about to say something. I, yeah, I, I guess like in, um, yeah, that the, like the Scandinavian countries is really interesting because they, they do have, there are like really um, kind of nice things about the societies that are about equality of opportunity and a kind of openness but but they but they achieve that almost through this kind of exclusionary 
like being being quite exclusive mm. um and it just made me think that there's this other uh factor that's rising in in that kind of pays into this is that um uh climate change is going to drive an increasing instability in the world mm. and an increasing scarcity of resources and um and a pressure on uh, and which which is going to make people in positions of power feel more at threat if they relinquish that power which i i, I mean I, I i don't really have a point with this i just i feel sad about it i guess that that this project is going to have to that the project of like un, un like unraveling inequality is going to have to happen in the face of it is just everyone is going to be worse off really quite soon mm. um and people don't like being worse off mm. so it's a really hard sell mm. yeah and um as i was saying before when when your privilege in in today's world when privilege is under threat um it seems like the uh, and and that phrase, privilege being under threat. Uh, uh, Lol. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, that, that's how it will be conceived by many people, that a privilege is being under threat. But I think the easiest thing for, for people to do is to isolate the privilege to themselves. And that's, as you said, that's a very sad thought um, in a in a world that's dying, literally dying. Um, yeah, the, the response that, that people will have is that they need to protect what they, what they might lose. Well, and, and also that divisive uh, reaction is, is like antithetical to being, or like, just like not at all helpful in being able to find a solution yeah. for the global problems that we have, yeah, yeah. which will... Set, which will kill us but like and like finding a way around it requires like radical cooperation not not Isolation. isolationism yeah. Yeah. yeah well so i think a big part of the project um of building a progressive politics in this moment in time uh when as you say oliver we are at the point where um privilege is scared of losing privilege and what that might lead to um, is creating uh, an understanding, a belief, a narrative of how relinquishing privilege is not um, is not an you don't lose um, you gain in that scenario um, I've been working on this in relationship to patriarchy um, on a on a project that I'm working on um, that looks at post-patriarchal masculinity. Um, I guess the equivalent in race would be post uh, post-racism whiteness. You know, um, in the theoretical sense, at a point where we could, oh, we you know, working towards a world where those inequalities aren't uh, are, are receding 
um, how does one embody the the identity that was historically dominant? And the the crucial thing is for men to be able to see um, the abol abolition of the patriarchy as liberatory for them, um, not as some pendulum that they have to swing the other way or not as some kind of nice gifts that they have to you know relinquish um and that's why i find i find the kind of i mean yeah just even when you said lol at the idea of privilege being lost like that we we talk about fragility in relationship to um the privileged and it's um like there's a lot of a lot of well-meaning humor i think that kind of that that points at the absurdity, the very real absurdity of people in positions of privilege worrying about losing that privilege. But we, I'm not going to talk about love, <laughs> but, um, uh, but like we have, we, I don't know who, but I have to, um, in my own self, see like a way to say to men, to white people, whoever it is, you know things are going to change you know and it's going to be good for you as well like that we're not doing this it's not like it's someone else's turn to, to to be oppressor you know it's like you can free yourself of this horrible um obligation that you've never been able to question um and that's but that's me just for me like because i'm because i occupy that position in society and i guess i suppose i've had a few experiences that have kind of shaken me up a bit i've noticed that i think that's what's going on and what yeah we're in such a a difficult moment but then i i do believe we could be hopefully on the precipice of changing that conversation but it does mean again it's this it's like on the doorstep it's like listening when you when someone you know like I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there because I, I think I think you I think you made the point and I don't think there's anything more you need to add sure um, that's not me telling you that I, I just think yeah 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 I, I, think, think, I, I think I got that I think I think you made the point beautifully um, and I, I think you're totally right I think as a conclusion to this conversation because we are an hour and 10 minutes now, um, which is a very long time. As a way to conclude this, um, I would like to, I don't know, try and, try and recap that last point that both of you and I made, um, which is that there needs to be an embracing of a changing world um, and a change to privilege. Um, and the last thing, the last thing that the most destructive thing that can happen is that is for people when, when one's privilege recedes for them to envisage a world where they are in the position of the people who haven't had access to that privilege. That is the last and worst and will be the most dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so for anyone who's listening, um, please be very aware of that 
that thought that some people might be having and um i don't know in some in some way try and try and have a conversation in light of the conversation that the three of us have had um because i feel like yeah i'd like to thank both of you for making the time to talk with me about this stuff My pleasure. Um, because um, i think it's the most important conversation i've had about um what about how we can change and about what people in what people who benefit from whiteness um and also what men um need to think in a in a world where those privileges are receding so thank you thank you thank you too alex thanks for listening um if you enjoyed this episode um which maybe maybe you enjoyed it maybe you didn't um it's a very challenging episode and yeah it's upsetting and for me it was it revealed very much about both myself and um, the state of the world that we live in Um, and if you'd like to hear more if you'd like to hear more episodes like this um, let me know Um, you can you can help me out in a number of ways actually you can um, leave a review on on apple podcasts or you can support the podcast in in a different way um, either via patreon by becoming a kind of patron of sorts or via paypal and you can find links to support the podcast on www.alex.co and as i've said before this podcast will never have ads ever 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 um, and it will only be that way i guess i'll only be able to continue making the podcast if if i have um kind of the the financial backing to do it so um please if you're enjoying it think about contributing in some way and i look forward to work on the next episode for next week so have a nice week until next sunday bye